I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Gender Swap Edition. It's Wednesday, February 19th, 2020. On today's show, the indie film The Assistant takes us into the indie film world, into the hush world of complicity and cleanup that presumably surrounded Harvey Weinstein, as experienced through a young woman with an entry-level job at a production company we are meant to think is based on Miramax. And then... How easily can you update a rock snob parable to 2020? We discuss the reboot of High Fidelity on Hulu. It stars Zoe Kravitz in the old John Cusack role. And finally, the writer Jenny O'Dell exhorts us to, quote, participate, but not as asked, unquote. We unpack what that could possibly mean and think about her new book, How to Do Nothing. I'm joined today by New York Times Magazine staff writer Sam Anderson, who weirdly is sitting directly across from me in my basement. Hey, Sam. Hi, Steve. It's great to look into your eyes. <laughs> it's great to look and put the lotion in the basket. <laughs> Sam, don't look directly. I don't think that joke is allowed on this show. It doesn't look directly into my eyes. I should also say you're the author of Boomtown, the fantastical saga of Oklahoma City, its chaotic founding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. A great, great book. Thank you. Uh, we're joined also by Dan Coyce. Uh, hey, Dan. Hey, I'm so sorry I'm not in the basement with you guys. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for, Dan. Um, Dan, of course, is a, a staff writer at uh, Slate. I'm excited to be here. I will be here for the next six weeks filling in for Dana as she definitely, absolutely, positively finishes her book. Dan, of course, is also the author of How to Be a Family, the year I dragged my kids around the world to find a new way to be together. Great book, by the way. Thank you, Sam. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. All right, let's dig right in. The Assistant is written and directed by Kitty Green. It stars Julia Garner as a young entry-level employee at a film company we're meant to understand is Miramax or Weinstein, whichever. She sits in the office just outside the office of a Harvey Weinstein-like figure. Her name is Jane, though we would scarcely know that. In the hush, self-serious place she works, no one calls anybody by their name. The atmosphere is too repressed, too impersonal, and just too frightened. It's as if eggshells had been strewn over every surface of the office. She's an assistant. But what that means really is she's a mood manager, a cleanup artist, literally and figuratively, someone paid to both sit at constant attention and not to see things. The movie takes us through a single day in her job, showing us its frankly bizarre combination of somnambulance and abject terror. But it's also a very careful study in the mechanics of complicity. It's a pretty cool movie. Uh, in the following scene, Jane goes to visit the uh, HR manager at the firm, played wonderfully by Matthew McFadden, to discuss her concerns. Let's listen to a clip. What's your plan? Sorry? Where do you want to be in five to ten years? Oh, uh, I I want to produce. I want to be a producer. You do? Yeah. <laughs> that's, okay, that's excellent. We could use more women producers. You know, that's a, you, it's a tough job, but I can see that you've got what it takes. Thanks. So why are you in here trying to throw it all away over this bullshit? 
Dan, since you're our Dana on the show, why don't I start with you? What'd you make of this movie? Uh, I mean, you pegged its tone exactly right. It's set almost, uh, not exactly in real time, but it feels a little bit like real time. It's set over the course of one day. It focuses on atmosphere over scene in some ways. That clip that we heard is really the sort of the only extended conversation in the entire movie between two characters, and it happens not inconsequentially at the time that um, Julia Garner's character leaves the building that she works in, walks down the street to the building next door, the comparatively bustling sort of operations center of the mini studio where she works, where people actually talk in the office and where things actually happen and where she's browbeaten in the end by uh, the HR guy who is in no way going to act on her concerns that her boss is exploiting a young assistant who's just been hired with no qualifications. It's a really intense and I think in many ways difficult movie to watch, both not exactly because of the abuse that the executive who we never see puts women through in his office, but because of the ways that we have to face her complicity and the complicity of everyone else in that office in allowing it to happen and helping it to happen. Sam, a very important part of this movie is that you never really glimpse directly the Weinstein figure. You maybe get uh, the flash of a coattail disappearing into a doorway. You hear his voice muted through a doorway and dimly through a telephone. So we never we never glimpse the sun around which this solar system orbits uh, directly, quite powerfully done. I thought so. I loved this movie. Uh, and I thought it was so much more powerful than a direct representation of that kind of a figure who already gets so much attention in our culture. We all know what Harvey Weinstein looks like. We all know what Bill Cosby looks like. We all know what Donald Trump looks like, ad nauseum. And what we don't often fully understand is how these people and people like them, the kind of bullying, abusive boss figure, creates the ecosystem in which they can exploit everyone around them. And so what we see in this film is like a real deep study of that ecosystem. And the triggers that those people use are like, not big explosive speeches and rational arguments. They're these little like primal triggers of, of fear that people have or s tiny scraps of status that people want to collect. And this movie dramatizes all of that so beautifully. Just the kind of like little tiny bro culture of like the two other assistant guys who work in the office with the main character. And you see they have this kind of little junior patriarchal bond that is really quite pathetic, but they're obviously trying to protect that and feeding off of that, this, this circuit from which she's excluded. Um, and I think just these these little touches are so brilliantly done. Yeah, I love this movie. It's very toneless, very affectless, uh, very quiet and meticulous. It's not mannered at all to me because I believe that this is how it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, you actually feel as though all of that is done in the service of being almost documentary and its plainness of style and its delivery of information. I mean, as we've said, you never directly see the Weinstein figure, but his ego and its effects are absolutely everywhere. We should probably say that Kitty Green, the creator of the movie and the director, 
uh, is a documentary filmmaker who prepared for this film by interviewing many, many, many assistants in many lines of work and kind of creating this composite of that oppressed experience of being an assistant. Uh, that is wild. I, I didn't know that, but it certainly comes through in the film. And it, so you live in an office like this, you live in terror of triggering an outburst and anything could do it. And I think what we're tempted to, I mean, when you watch a movie like this, you're tempted to say, oh, this is medieval, right? There's almost like a medieval lord and everyone is a serf and this is a fief. There's some zone of power that seems to be throwing us back centuries. Mm. But it's even more primitive than that, which is that this guy's a volcano and you have to feed it virgins. I mean, obviously, Dan, this is a movie that's, I hate to reduce it in any way with the word topical, but it's very much about how you are expected to aid in the procuring of young women in order to placate the godhead. Yeah, and we see the evidence of how that has perpetuated through this company all over this movie, right from that HR executive who has obviously had to deal with this over and over again and who immediately conveys uh, the main character's concerns directly to her boss because she's balled out seconds upon returning to her office to other female executives at the company who in the kitchen are trying to figure out which men they must appease to move into the departments that they want to move into to the the more senior executive who at the end of the movie tries to help the the main character Julie Garner's character feel better about what's happening by alluding to her own experiences with this exact guy and how they aided in in moving her career along and it creates this kind of web with the the spider at the center right and then everyone else around him trying to deliver to him uh, everything that he needs not just the women that he needs but the scripts that he needs the dvds that he needs the car that he needs at the exact moment that he needs it and so the abuse that he delivers to the women in his circle reads as only sort of one other version of the servicing that is delivered to him at all times. He he never must want for anything. And his appetites are always uh, soothed and, and massaged instantly. And everything he needs is supplied instantly. And, and medieval is one word for it, but also strikes me as very, very modern in that it's a, it's a society set up to appease a figure at the top that presumably is a, a lucrative moneymaker for this company, right? It's not just that he's powerful. It's that he's successful and the company is designed to perpetuate that kind of success as long as possible in as frictionless a manner as possible. When Julia Garner goes to the HR office, the first question the guy asks her is not, are you worried about this girl who has been brought in and put in this difficult situation, but is the girl a danger to the company? And mm -hmm. that moment and that scene was when, you know, all my alarm bells started going off and when I realized, oh, this is where the scene is going. My favorite moment in that HR scene, which as Dan said, is really the only moment of extended dialogue in the film, is a quiet moment or a nonverbal moment, which I think this film does so beautifully, which is when the HR guy pushes the Kleenex box across the desk and it <laughs> makes this kind of like deafening scrape. And this movie has a sort of poetics of materials, I think. You know, crinkling plastic, bubble wrap, slicing through packing tape with a utility knife to, to unpack a case of water bottles to be arrayed um, for the boss. And 
to me, that all adds up in this beautifully subtle way to this portrait of consumer capitalism and bureaucratic capitalism, the kind of clacking of keyboard keys, the printing out of huge binders full of documents, all to be arrayed in front of the boss for for his use and ease and pleasure. And just just that kind of subverbal level of materials being yeah. crunched and cut through and smoothed and arrayed is so powerful. There's a moment near the end of the movie, I won't spoil the context, where she just unwraps a convenience store muffin and the yeah. plastic, the sound of the plastic is like heartbreaking. Yeah. I, I, Sam, I totally agree. I mean, there's also just, you know, in addition to the materiality of the movie, there's uh, screens are omnipresent in this film. And it's a movie about the movie business, but we never see a movie screen. They're just, people are constantly, the, the way people pose themselves in front of screens is so self-consciously rendered in the film. The slight tilt of the head, walking forward like a zombie as you thumb through your mm. messages and texts. People at keyboards uh you know fluttering their fingers the sort of purr of the keyboard that's being typed um you know very quickly i thought dan maybe there's some kind of irony at work here that this is the kind of movie that harvey weinstein would have disliked or buried or chopped to bits in order to make it more obvious and more brisk um i thought that was a pleasantly delivered uh thumb to the eye he would have he would have made sure to cast a big star as him right <laughs> been like this movie is so you can't make this movie without De Niro. And instead, as it's the just hero, the, yeah, right, and, or or even as the villain, he I think yeah, he well, wouldn't mind true, making yeah. this movie with him as the larger than life villain. Uh, I mean, maybe the characters of High Fidelity would argue about that at some point, whether he's the villain or the antihero. But yeah, he would he would make a very different version of this movie, and that is a little bit of a thumb in the eye. Instead, it's the voice of J.O. Sanders, the great theater actor, uh, very, just barely audible over the phone playing him, and that's all we hear and see. Very effective. I just want to say quickly, um, uh, I think there are two questions this movie asks somewhat implicitly, maybe maybe explicitly, which is, why would anyone put up with humiliations like this uh, on a day-to-day basis? And in that scene that we all point to, the guy says to her, there are 400 resumes for your job alone, Ivy League, 4.0 GPAs. And there's the sense that being inside there, there's some unspoken imperative to the film, which is being inside there is somehow better than being outside, which comes through a little bit in this muffin unwrapping scene as well and then the big question the movie sam to me is is she going to show up tomorrow i mean this is clearly it's it's a day in the life it's meant to be typical in one sense but it's atypical in another sense in that it clearly in going to hr she's reached a kind of a fork in the road we don't know the answer to the question of whether she'll show up tomorrow but am i right this is this is the moment for that character whether she decides to be you know complicit or not yeah it's i think she's absolutely chicavian ending I like to believe that she's not showing up tomorrow, Dan. If she does show up tomorrow, she's in forever, right? She's part of the complicity machine. I think she's showing up tomorrow because of that exchange, that email exchange she has after she gets yelled at by the boss for going to HR. She has to compose one of the several apology emails that all people who work for this guy must compose on a daily basis. And he writes back in seconds, I'm hard on you because... I'm going to make you great. Um, and that recognition from him, the the recognition of the movie, of the way that he can toggle that quickly between 
certain kinds of abuse and certain kinds of flattery and how susceptible those employees are to that. That was what told me that he's too good at this for him, for her to bail at this point. And she's in that web, same Ooh. as everyone else. I don't see her leaving. I choose to have hope, Dan. We do not live in a fallen world. She is not persuaded. This is the rare circumstance in which what I uh, can say on a podcast is a little bit circumscribed due to the terms of my non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> but um, <laughs> this movie is exactly right. It is a documentary, basically, of the of the atmosphere of quiet terror that permeates an office exactly like this and the way that these kinds of bosses abuse and flatter their employees and the ways that the traditional workplace infrastructure can support basically totally unprofessional and inhuman behavior while being totally unable to remedy those abuses in any way and the way that that infrastructure is supposed to remedy those things. The dad call should have been in a just world the thing that tipped her out of that because, oh, I come from wonderful, loving people and I can't be in this environment. But horribly, ironically, that's the thing that probably is going to push her back there the next morning. Yeah. And that she can't. Proud of her. Absolutely. That, and that there's no way for her to make clear to normal human beings what it is that she actually is enduring on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Like that is what is most crazy making about those kinds of jobs is that you, people are like, oh, you must be really busy, right? And you are just like, well, I can't. There's like no way for me to to explain to you what it is that my day is like this, this movie, right. is, it's like, it's like, it reminds me of swimming with sharks yeah. uh, in that it's a movie that if you have a job like this, you can show to someone and be like, it's not exactly like this, but this is not, not what it's like. That like I- inability to communicate to others. I mean, in that HR scene, it's the same thing. It's like what literally she says to the guy doesn't convey the horror of what she's seen, even though it's a totally factual rendering of it and he's able to just write it down on his little yellow legal pad and he shows it to her twice that gesture of like well here are the words that you've said they get you precisely nowhere exactly because that's the power of this of this scam that these people run and the horror is it's subverbal yeah it's in all the noises and the silences and the looks and the and then when you try to verbalize it it just doesn't scan and in a way, I mean, to me, the Weinsteinness of it, the the topicalness of it, is nailed and horrifying and exactly right, but is in some respects the the least cinematically interesting aspect. It's everything else about the movie that sent me this morning into the bathroom in my own like early morning PTSD crying jag, and so. And so the the atmosphere that the movie creates of every kind of abuse that goes from the top down in this company struck me as really remarkable. Right. And I, we would be remiss if we didn't say that the movie made, you know, written and directed by a woman starring a woman about a woman is a, is a very seriously intended feminist document. I mean, setting aside the me too aspect and the Harvey Weinstein aspect of the story, it's very much about how labor gets gendered down the hierarchical ladder of a corporation. I mean, she's the one who's expected to quote unquote deal with the wife, right? This right. we're meant to assume quite volatile figure who comes out of the blue with complaints about her, how her credit cards are functioning and no way are these men going to deal with that or the clog in the Xerox machine. 
so I, I agree, Dan. It's it's its reach goes beyond you know the headlines. Anyway, it's a remarkable movie. The Assistant. We all I think we agree. Absolutely. Yeah. I really, really cared for this movie. Okay, check it out. Let's uh, let's move on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on all your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week, On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, before we go any further, typically we talk business right now. Uh, Dan, uh, take it away. What do we have? Uh, The only business I know of is to talk about what we're going to be talking about on Slate Plus. Of course, if you are a Slate Plus member, you can hear us in our bonus segment, as we do every week. Uh, Sometimes they call it Slot Plus. I call it Slate Plus because it's my show now. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about a piece I wrote for Slate a couple weeks ago about this insanely great New Zealand fantasy novel that I was super annoyed was not being published in America. And then how that piece sort of helped to change that. It was It's a fun little Roger Ebert and My Dinner with Andre type story of a critic taking a stand. And I'm going to tell you guys all about it. So if you want to hear that, sign up for Slate Plus. You support everything that Slate does, our journalism, our podcasts. You get bonus segments. You get ad-free podcasts. It's only 35 bucks for the first year. Please sign up. Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Take it away, Steve. Thank you, Dan. All right. Well, the original High Fidelity, both the novel by uh, Nick Hornby and the movie, which starred John Cusack, both were studies in the music nerd's incurable immaturity, the obsessive ranking and trivia hoarding of the loner who spent too much time gazing into the gatefold, studying the lyrics. It was therefore also a study in the self-obsessed control freak and commitment phobe. Can you, and here I'm sort of semi-plagiarizing Willa Paskin's wonderful review, can you swap it all out and turn him from a white man into a black woman living in Crown Heights in 2020? The show stars Zoe Kravitz as Rob. She DJs, she listens to Pink Moon, she eats fruity pebbles. She's the owner of a vinyl record shop in deep Brooklyn. Let's listen to a clip. Best live recording of McCartney that's ever been done. You gotta check it out. Wings Over America was 1976, no? Oh. You'd be a Paul McCartney fan. Big enough to know when that album came out, which was 1976. No, sweet pea. You're wrong. You're talking about the Triple Live album, right? Now you got it. There you go. From the Wings Over the World Tour? Mm-hmm. Mostly from their show in L.A. that summer? Yeah. Yeah, that was 1976. Yeah, I love that album. I love it too, man. But, um, you know, I always want to take away points for all those vocal overdubs, you know? I mean, at what point is a live album not a live album, right? That being said... It has that sick version of Maybe I'm Amazed, which completely destroys the original, so I give it a pass for that. Oh. Thanks, Eddie. Mm-hmm. Got yourself quite a little firecracker there, don't you, Will? Sam, let me start with you on this one. Um, it's a bit of a tough assignment making this, you know, gender-reversed and relevant 
What'd you, what'd you make of it? I wanted to like it more. Willa Paskin identifies something that is just kind of off in this show. It feels not quite real. It feels sort of set in the now, but also unintentionally retro, maybe. And Willa writes that maybe the best way to understand this show is to think about it as if it's happening in some kind of alternate universe. Uh, And she writes, does high fidelity exist in a timeline where Kurt Cobain didn't die? Cool Herc was never born. CDs were never invented. Napster never existed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all the musical references are, you mentioned Pig Moon. It seems like this incredibly hip, fluent in everything, musical, record shop owning nerd. Most of her references come from like songs that I've heard in car commercials or Gap commercials, you know? There's like, because this Fleetwood Mac is discussed at length, you know, when she's really down, she's listening to Pink Moon. Episode two starts with this, to me, excruciating scene of, I counted 26 seconds of her sort of like silently emoting into the camera while listening to the very familiar strains of Loving You by Minnie Ripperton. And I just wanted musically to be taken beyond that palette. And at least in the three episodes I watched, we never really were. And it was confusing to me. Yeah, Dan, it seems to me the problem here is way more generational than gender-based. It's it's somehow living as uh, Sam and Willa allude to in this alternate universe where kind of like it's 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 as far back as like michael jackson madonna and run dmc never existed what do you make of this it's very weird willow's question about whether rob uh that notably they did not even change the name uh is truly a type that exists seems relevant but it didn't i agree with you that the gender issue seemed less relevant to me than the fact that she is like a, a 32-year-old human in New York who doesn't seem to know or care anything about modern pop. And I feel like that is a taste profile that I think essentially no longer exists. There's no such thing as a music snob who is absolutely uninterested in contemporary hip-hop and pop. Like they don't have any opinions on Ariana. No one really argues that much about Drake um, they don't appear to have any opinion about Taylor Swift, which seems insane to me. And so, yeah, from a music standpoint, the fact that the the music is essentially the taste of a slightly more racially conscious John Cusack from the original movie High Fidelity is bananas. It's crazy. I mean, it's also, it's the, well, let me begin by saying I kind of like this, even though it's it's just curious. She's uh, mesmerizing I think she's very fun to watch in this and she's very game and uh, is doing a great job so I was super happy to follow I it disagree through. with that oh Ooh. manic uh, pixie dream no girl-ish. it's more that she I think what drives me crazy about her is the way the show uses the the, the fleabag conceit mm-hmm. um, the monologues to the camera but then also the sidelong glances to the camera in scenes and I think it's because in Fleabag, right, I feel like it was used conspiratorially to invite us into the mind of this character who we otherwise might not be able to understand. But in this show, 
all those sidelong glances and all those monologues seem to me essentially performative. And there's this moment in the episode we heard the clip from, which is an episode later in the season called Uptown, which is actually was one of my favorite episodes that I watched, in which she is driving uh, uptown to visit the record collection of a, of a rich Upper West Side woman and um, with hopes of acquiring it. And Clyde, one of the two guys, one of the three guys who she is interested in over the course of this season, who's played by Jake Lacey, who's very funny, is driving her up there because she called him because he's the one guy she knows who has a car. And it's really only their second date, this trip up to the Upper West Side. And he, when she gets in the car, he's playing the Grateful Dead. And then he like starts talking about how great it is to go up to the top of the Empire State Building. And she give this, gives this look to the camera like, can you believe this, this asshole? And it just made me hate her um, mm-hmm. in a way that I think was not the show's intention. I think the show wants us to believe in her as not only as a type, but as a, a person whose heartbreak matters. But she felt the character feel so performative to me that I could never get on board with wanting to know what would happen next because I felt like she at all times – wasn't engaged in what was happening to her and was much more engaged in being the type that she believes herself to be. I don't know that I don't think it's Zoe Kravitz's fault. I think that she's a pretty live wire performer, but in a way it's her fault because the show is her baby, right? She's executive producing. She's one of the brains behind it. She co-wrote one of the episodes though. The episode at one of the episodes I like the best, but the match of character to actor doesn't seem right to me because all that energy is delivered in the service of a character who I just don't fundamentally believe. I agree with you. I don't think it's Zoe Kravitz's fault as an actor. I think she has all the tools she needs. It feels like the direct address to the audience is another element that's been sort of trapped in amber circa the year 2000 and transported forward to now where it no longer reads as interesting, um, experimental. I mean, these poor shows that have to operate in the wake of Fleabag, which was so (laughs) virtuosic in its use of the breaking the fourth wall, the direct address, not only in making it that kind of bravura thing of making it a thematic element in the end from which she walks away, spoiler alert, but the way that um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge pulls that off the the glancing kind of blows to the camera that you, you that you watch and you think how could anyone ever have written that and in this it feels so stilted and wooden she just stares into the camera and sighs mm-hmm. and gives us these long right. speeches and it, it just felt old-fashioned felt like listening to a you know 1986 rap song as compared <laughs> to the production values <laughs> and sophistication of today's rap all right l- let me make a a, a ten Three, two, one. A tentative defense of this of this TV show. So, why did the original high fidelity novel and movie work? Because it was anatomizing what was detestable about the white male or a certain kind of white male, and uh, it was very specific to that identity, right? And and how that identity is formed in 
music snobbery. Like my authenticity is their authenticity. Their authenticity is my authenticity is what this kind of nerd says about the music that they love in part because overwhelmingly that kind of music is made by young white men with whom they identify or whom they idealize. And so the way in which she's a wonderful character is precisely that she's not that type. She doesn't occupy that same identity and yet has that same mental or, you know, organizational habit for understanding the world. To me, that's really curious. It's not just a, it's not a bug, it's a feature of it in a way. You know, she's doing to men what men have historically done to women, which is sound off knowingly about something women don't care about, but, you know, the man feels like they should. And so she's, instead of being quiet, supportive, patient listener, she's flipping that completely on its head, which has some interest to me, I think. Like, But only if, in the course of its run, they make the two questions one question and answer it, which is, why does this person, why does a woman of color in her early 30s have a very white male uh, kind of retro relationship to the musical canon? If they can't actually answer that explicitly in the plot of it, and they just want you to swallow it, then I don't think it will work. And that has to get bound up in her inability to commit that somehow being frozen in pop musical time is part of what's sealed her off from these possible relationships, in which case it is going at the same set of questions that the original did quite creatively and intelligently. I agree post-fleabag addressing the camera is just a dead letter, though. I would like to the thing that makes this uh, show extremely worth it to me in a way that actually I think probably bodes well for the future of the show is that – and this is mean, but everything that isn't about Zoe Kravitz's character is extremely good. All the supporting performances are fantastic. Um, Divine Joy Randolph and David Holmes as her two coworkers, Sharice and Simon – Divine Joy Randolph in particular is an actor who I just love in this and who the only other time I've seen her in anything was in Dolomite Is My Name, the Eddie Murphy movie that came out on Netflix last year, which she was also remarkable in. And Jake Lacey, who I mentioned as one of the guys, and then Parker Posey, who shows up in just one episode as that Upper West Side doyenne who's selling off a record collection and who gives this just astonishing star performance in that role. And the series, and this is not irrelevant, I think, to what you're saying, Steve, because the series as it goes on, one way of thinking about it is that it it becomes less interested in Zoe Kravitz's character and her problems and the situations that she's facing as the series goes on. It becomes less invested in those long monologues to the camera. But another way of thinking about it and the way that that I think maybe is is more to credit the series is that the series broadens its lens. It gets more interested in the people around her who all have their own stories of taste, uh, romantic taste and musical taste and cultural taste to tell. And those stories are really interesting. And the way it spins them around her, I think is, is new and exciting to me. And so if I keep watching this series, it's going to be for those later stories and later episodes and to see the ways that it subsumes this maniacal focus on this one character into a, a broader ensemble piece that I think is a much more interesting piece. Right. So it turns from high fidelity into high maintenance, basically. Yes. Yes. Maybe it's a little analogous to the translation of the office from England to the United States. You remember those early episodes where they literally use the same script 
and it was just a different set of actors performing it and all the inflections were off there was no juice in it whatsoever and the show really took on life when it embraced its americanness and this more like slapstick broad stupidity and everyone stared at the camera ironically all the time um maybe something similar happens here where you you escape the orbit of the original um i found there's that key moment in the original high fidelity film which i think is pulled straight from the book where rob bonds with her co-worker over this conversation that's kind of the philosophical statement of high fidelity which is it's not who you are that matters it's, it's what you like it's your taste that really matters which in the year 2020 strikes me as just such an obvious outmoded notion when we're all exchanging our Spotify playlists and most listen and all that and talking about cultural capital. And I feel like we just have, again, such a deeper understanding of those things that hopefully the series moves beyond it. I just want to point out uh, one thing which which reminded me just how much the original High Fidelity was a document of my own particular brain disease, uh, which is that in a later episode, Ballad of the Lonesome Loser, the episode that revolves around the character of Simon, um, one of her record store coworkers, a very, very good episode. There's a crucial scene in the record store, and the song that's playing over the speakers is the beta band song that's from the original movie and the scene where John mm. Kuzak is like, I'm going to sell five copies of the beta band, three EPs. And I, all I could think about was, oh, I know that fucking song. Great fucking song. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, who's sticking with us till the uh, final episode? Not me. I will. I will because it, it's like dramatically improving. The, I sampled throughout the season and like five and seven are significantly better than one and two. Like it seems to be hitting its stride. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm looking at my uh, list of quotes that I jotted down in episode two. She says, tonight I go deep tonight. I go dot, 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 Prince deep. Oh boy. Okay. I thought, I thought I was going back, but you just made that a tall wall to scale there. <laughs> All right. Well, it's high fidelity. It's on uh, it's on Hulu and Sam loved it. All right. Uh, moving on. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know, there are urgent things happening in the world around you, but all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next. Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before, or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next. And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next. To participate but not as asked, Jenny O'Dell says in her book, How to Do Nothing, whose central idea is not that the internet is degrading per se, but that its commercialization has made it that way, has made it quite degrading. The deep analysis of the book does something bigger than just decry the internet and the state of our attention span. It's really about a notion of productivity that penetrates our culture. And it's in both an existentialist and a social critique in a way. I want to show a little bit in my introduction how these two things go together before talking to Sam about the book. But she says at one point, capitalism, colonialist thinking, loneliness, 
and an abusive stance towards the environment all co-produce one another. I think that that's a pretty, pretty deep idea. And she traces her ideas as far back as Seneca and up through someone as postmodernist, I, I guess, as uh, Gilles Deleuze. The idea that we are, in some sense, Sam, we're squanderers. And it's not just that we produce an enormous amount of waste. We produce plastic and crap by the metric ton. It's that in doing so, we're squandering the very stuff of our existence. We're squandering our life. I, I thought that she leads with that quite powerfully in some sense. Talk to me about why this book mattered to you. I love this book. I've given this book to like seven or eight different people. It was kind of my Christmas gift of the year. And I mean, I think we start with the fact that attention is maybe the question of our time. This is not a new revelation. I mean, we've known since William James, at least, who who wrote my experience is what I agree to attend to. But over the last 10 years, especially with the rise of social media, we have these kind of precision engineered, algorithmic capitalist companies hooking very deep into our attentional patterns and instincts and exploiting them for a profit. And I think we can all agree that, that we're sort of either going crazy or at least fundamentally changing the way we engage with each other, with the world, with the devices in front of us. And it's just a problem that we need to think through. And I think this book does that in a way that, as you said, is very complex. Um, she's not just a technophobic you know, she celebrates certain things about technology. She doesn't just say we should throw our phones in the ocean. And she engages with it from some angles that I haven't seen anyone do before, one of which is the primacy of art in the question of how we spend our attention, which I found really powerful. Dan, there's a version of this book that one could invent in one's head without having to read it, a caricature version, which I don't think she wrote. That that The caricature version is... Um, unplug, return to the land, return to face-to-face human interactions, um, become more mindful. I mean, that book has been written a hundred times. What I found curious about this book is that she's not really telling you to unplug. What she's saying on a first order is pay attention to how your attention has been appropriated and commodified by these giant companies and turned into a form of whopping misattention. And that if we complete the act of appropriation or reappropriation of our own attention span, we don't have to cancel Facebook or Twitter. Um, I thought that she brought this argument into a new place that was refreshing. What did you think? I agree that the, the sort of straw man version of this book, the easy, just unplug, just be mindful version of this book is not at all what Jenny O'Dell has written. And I think that my frustrations with the book have mostly to do with my frustrations with myself. Um, you know, when we talked about doing this as a topic, that I told you guys that the first time I made, tried to make my way through this book, I gave up at about thirty pages in, and I I read it this weekend in preparation for this segment, and found a lot to chew on in the book, but also found so much to chew on that I started to think of the title of the book as almost, um, it's like almost a kind of joke. I just feel like the book is not actually at all about how to do nothing. And that is part of its appeal, but it was also part of its frustration. There's a section toward the end, um, 
in which she, you know, it's the, in the, in a different kind of book, it would be the, like the takeaway section, right? Where it tells you, well, how, what should I do? How should I live my life? And it, it just made me laugh when I read it because here's what she writes. Sometimes boycotting the attention economy by withholding attention is the only action we can afford to take. Other times, we can actively look for ways to impact things like the addictive design of technology, but also environmental politics, labor rights, women's rights, indigenous rights, anti-racism initiatives, measures for parks and open spaces, and habitat restoration. And when I read that, I was like, oh, yes, things like that. We should attempt yeah. to impact things like that. Get going, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> and so – and all this is to say she's not wrong about any of these things and the the level of thought and, and yes, attention that she is giving to all the different ways that the, the webs of corporate attention to us and human inattention to the world around us outside of the, our very limited 2020, the year 2020 vision um, is all – Spot on. But I think what I found frustrating about the book is that it seemed like a, an accurate diagnosis in that it it correctly situates all those problems within the greater context of everything that is wrong with the world. But I did not in any way find coming out of it that I thought any differently about what it is I ought to be doing with my life, which is to say it cemented my understanding even further that I'm fucking my life up completely and gave me no hope that I could ever take the steps that might be necessary in order to do anything because there are so many steps. That's probably unfair to a book that that isn't intending. I mean, that right out in that section that I read says I'm not intending to give you like a step-by-step -step plan. And, I, and it's not even a step-by-step -step plan that I wanted, but I just wanted, I think, less of a sense that, you know, Sam, as you said, Attention is the question of our time, and I think I wanted her to pay more attention to attention. She's a really brilliant sort of magpie. Yeah. She makes these incredible collages out of quotes and descriptions of various performance artists' work. Um, but you're right. She doesn't give a simple prescription. I mean, I think that's her great strength because attention being the great question of our time, of course, it's not going to have a set of simple answers to get us to the bottom of it. And I think one thing she says is, you know, this isn't about a once and for all fix. It's about a retraining of our attention and coming over and over and over again to a set of kind of grounding truths day by day. You know, she does a lot of bird watching, um, or burden noticing, as she calls it, because she correctly says it's impossible to distinguish a bird from its habitat, from the bush it's sitting in, from the sounds it makes. So it's much more than watching. Um, and she writes a lot about this concept of bioregionalism and understanding where you actually live at this moment, the kind of confluence of creeks that make the watershed and the topography and the history of the peoples who have lived there. And I think those are all routes into sanity. Mm -hmm. It's true. I mean, it, but Sam, let me let me bounce this back on you from a slightly different angle, which is well, two things, really. One is that we live 
as her book reflects, we live within this kind of encompassing totality, right? Let's call it capitalism or global capitalism. And its job is to insinuate itself everywhere till we can really, we see, we, we think we're seeing things, but we're really discrete things, but we're really seeing instances of it, right? I find the argument most powerful when she's really getting at the notion of um, of uh, productivity, right? Like nothing is opposed against this notion of productivity that often when you act in a modern capitalistic society, you are actually being instrumentalized by some semi-seen or unseen force. And that's the political aspect of the argument is, is actually what attention will do is not just a Zen-like union with, you know, a fact of nature, like a, you know, a daffodil or a passing cloud, but you'll see how you are being instrumentalized by forces that see you purely as a means to an end. My question is, nothing indicates that the act of reappropriation so takes you outside of that logic that there's no actual social leverage to be used against it in some sense. I mean, she talks about, you know, I prefer not to, the famous, you know, mantra of Bartleby and Melville's uh, Bartleby the Scrivener. I mean, do you feel as though she navigates that possible conflict that in doing nothing, one turns oneself into a kind of modern ghost or irrelevancy, and you can't, you think so non-instrumentally that you don't affect change in the world? That's a great and huge question. And I think one that she's tried to grapple with a little more since the publication of the book. I don't know the answer to that. Um, You know, she has a long chapter about failed utopias and the experiments with communes in the 1960s and how they all ended in sort of tragic comedy Um, and the impossibility of escaping the totality in which we live. So I think that's one of those questions that doesn't have an answer that would sure be nice to have an answer to. Dan, did you find an answer to that one? I think that she I think that she does consider that as the book goes on and as you say Sam after the book's publication. I think she has considered that quite a bit and one of the things the book is very good at is refocusing our attention on the on the different levels of action that someone can take uh, when one starts to operate in the world as opposed to uh, online. I mean, there's a great deal of, of, of space given in this book to stuff like, as you say, bird noticing, to a very small park in West Oakland along the waterline right between the docks to a slough by Monterey that she goes to every year to uh, to um, observe not just the birds but the entire habitat that they live in. And Steve, I think that she does grapple with that question in a way that suggests she knows – that doing nothing is not the answer. The one reason that we're talking about this book right now is this essay of hers that um, ran in the Paris Review last month uh, about Emerson, a writer who doesn't really come up that much at all in How to Do Nothing, but someone who she's read since that book came out. And I've found this essay 
a very useful grappling with that exact question. Um, and with the sort of this myth, she says, of self-reliance, this this myth that she has to face as a claim for the book, as the sort of endless uh, rigmarole of promoting it and talking about her ideas has sort of turned her into, she feels, a, a kind of automaton of like of putting the same ideas out into the world. This This recalibrating way of thinking about the self and self-reliance was useful to her as a thing to oppose, as a thing to to reject in some ways, right? The idea of this essay is that Emersonian self-reliance is so dependent on this unseen web of privilege and status that she enjoys um, that that it, it is incumbent upon a person when thinking about how they can change the world to think about how they sit in that that nest of of responsibility and how you can build it anew. And I found that a, like a, a not unreasonable answer to this question at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I that. I that made any sense. I feel like no, that's well put. Okay. All, yeah, all the sense in the world. Um, Sam, let me just uh, bump it back to you one more time. You yourself wrote a book about an overwhelming totality, something that couldn't really be glimpsed in one in you know in one moment or or apprehended in in uh, any single glance. Um, is that one of the reasons you admire this book in some sense? The attempt to take on something that's just larger than our capacity to really see or describe, but somehow also do it justice. You're referring to Oklahoma City? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Well, in Oklahoma City, I mean, because the other way to look at it is just the synecdotal power of one place for the mm-hmm. whole country, for the whole globe. I mean, there was this way in which it, your book wasn't really, I'll tell you what your book was about, Sam. Okay, thanks. You're in my basement now. <laughs> I think that is something that resonated with me. I have always resented the notion that we as members of a culture should be paying attention to certain things and ignoring other things. Uh, There's this kind of feedback loop about what is and what is not interesting, what is worthy of spending time with and not. And that is so often just obviously determined by these giant capitalistic engines of profit, you know, that, that want you to be talking about a film that's out this month and then you got to stop talking about it next month because that's old news um i've always resented that cycle as a writer much to the frustration of my editors and so i think part of writing an entire book about oklahoma city which is a place we've all been carefully trained not to care about um was this act of rebellion of look Look at the things you're told not to think about. Think about them as deeply as you can. Um, Everything is interesting. And there's a kind of, I guess there's a kind of replacement totality there that strikes me as healthier. You know, um, she writes early in the book, this sentence that really struck me. um, She writes, a simple refusal motivates my argument. Refusal to believe that the present time and place and the people who are here with us are somehow not enough. That's a really powerful idea to me. Being in this basement with you, Steve, is enough. (laughs) The thing that the book, one thing that the book is very, very good at that Steve, what you and Sam have just 
mentioned really reminds me of is in its framing of attention, not as a state, but as an act, right? That attention requires constant focusing and calibration that to really see, for example, a painting or uh, or a landscape full of birds or a basement with two sweaty men in it requires you to always be refocusing your attention and reconsidering it and recalibrating yourself. It's not just about being open or mindful in some like vague, nonspecific way. It's about really noticing over and over and over again. And I think Sam's book, to as this book does, is an exercise in re-noticing a place. In, the, in Jenny O'Dell's case, it's an idea. In Sam's case, it's a place. Uh, but in re-noticing over and over again new things and finding new ways of thinking about and telling the stories of something that, as Sam says, we're not supposed to be paying any attention to at all, according to the people who hold the purse strings. And I did find that inspiring and interesting in this book. And that's something I I didn't I don't even think I got to that idea the first time I, with my own, you know, beleaguered, atrophied ability to attend to anything, couldn't finish the book the first time. And so refocusing on the book in that spirit, I think really helped me get a lot more out of it, even as it made the book itself seem a little bit overwhelming, maybe fruitfully overwhelming, but overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Well, one one of my favorite uh, uh, parts of the book is that she's sort of reviving Gilles Deleuze, who, who, who's disappeared a little bit, this French theorist who was hugely inspiring to Foucault, um, but otherwise, I think, has disappeared from the canon. And she has a wonderful quote, a passage from him. Stupidity's never blind or mute, he says, so it's not a problem of getting people to express themselves, but of providing little gaps of solitude and silence in which they might eventually find something to say. I thought that was that was quite wonderful. Potatoes, rhizomes, Deleuze and Guattari, that's their big idea, right? Oh, Rhizomatic connection, not this sort of fantasy of one trunk producing right. things, but this endless web of interconnections that is in fact much more complex right schizo capitalism yeah and and to go back to dan's point jenny odell points out one of the sicknesses of kind of capital c capitalistic culture is this obsession with novelty and growth and she points out that biologically endless growth is actually quite dangerous i mean look at cancer cells, that's what they do. And that what we neglect in that framework is maintenance and care and just kind of tending to what's already here rather than leaping after all these novel things all the time or trying to make what we have bigger and better. It's just like existing with what we have and making sure it's okay and making sure each other are okay. So it goes back to what Dan was saying about attention as this act, this never-ending recapitulation of paying attention over and over and over. I think it is a revolutionary idea. All right. Well, the book is How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. uh, And we'll also post to the remarkable essay in the Paris Review about Emerson and self-reliance. Okay, moving on. Now is the moment in the podcast when we endorse Dan. What do you have? 
So the writer, the Arkansas writer Charles Portis died this week. Um, so I am endorsing reading some Charles Portis. Um, he's famously, uh, you know, I think infamously been a, you know, the world's most popular unknown writer beloved by other writers. Um, his stuff has been turned into movies, yet he's never been particularly famous in part due to his own unwillingness to, to play the publicity game or indeed write very many novels at all. There's a grand total of six Charles Portis books in existence, uh, and he's been writing them since the 50s. So, Most famous for True Grit is probably what people who don't know Charles Portis would know him right. for. Um, I think before I read any of him, having always just read these stories about him or having heard of him as you know a writer's writer, I think I always thought of him as forbidding or intimidating, um, maybe someone who civilians, you know, non-writer's writer people couldn't get into. But in fact... When I finally read a book of his, the first book I read was a novel called Norwood. Uh, I learned that his books are hilarious and they are very light on their feet. They're just like glorious reading experiences. I'm now parceling them out over the rest of my life so I don't run out of them too soon. But I read True Grit last summer and uh, no lie, just like sitting on the beach reading that book for an afternoon was just my favorite reading experience I had the entire year. I did not enjoy anything more than I enjoyed those few hours I spent reading True Grit. I just never stopped smiling the whole time. So my recommendation is uh, read some Charles Portis. Start with True Grit if you want, but I bet you would like them all. I'm excited to do that. All right, Sam, what do you got? I'm going to recommend a YouTube video. Uh, as I mentioned, Jenny O'Dell's book is this incredible web of references um, and art pieces you should go check out. And I made a big list of them and started working through them. And one of the most fun was this YouTube video that she said she often shows in her classes. She teaches art. And it's a clip from a 1960s TV show called I've Got a Secret, a very popular sort of variety show, I think. And it's John Cage appearing on the show. It's only, I think, four minutes long, and he's performing his piece, Water Walk, which is this completely kooky performance involving all kinds of props, including a bathtub filled with water that he puts a big flower pot in at one point and waters it, and he's using a stopwatch to sort of coordinate all these different actions, and you get the kind of standard John Cage, beautiful, spare cacophony. And the, the surprising thing is it's done in front of a live studio television audience. And he, of course, is poker face the entire time, uh, walking around, knocking things off of tables. Um, and the audience is just laughing hysterically, just roaring with laughter. And his timing, the wit of it is just so much fun. Um, it made me think of something one of my favorite critics, Hugh Kenner, once wrote about Samuel Beckett and Beckett's experimental novels, where you kind of lose the momentum of a traditional plot, but you gain something else, which Kenner described as the unquenchable lust to know what will happen in the next 10 words. And for me, the cage piece, it was like this unquenchable lust to know what would happen in the next 10 seconds. 
Like, what would he clonk on next? Or would hold up a rubber chicken and squeak? It's just amazing. I recommend it. That sounds really cool. All right. Well, in the spirit of Jenny O'Dell, uh, I'm going to uh, endorse, recommend um, seeing Parasite a second time, which I did with my 17-year-old daughter who was uh, blown away by it. I loved the movie the first time, but I found the shocking parts of it so shocking that it distracted me in some sense um, from how the movie actually ends. And anyway, seeing it a second time, you are prepared for the shock. The shock is less shocking and the terrible pathos of the movie really lands, really comes home. And it it just, the movie strikes that much more deeply. And then I also want to uh, endorse a, re- a remarkable uh, piece of reporting in the Chronicle of Higher Ed called The Professor of Denial, in which a reporter and writer named Amanda Crawford goes and hangs around with and tries to get to know this lunatic academic named James Fetzer, who has made it his life's uh, mission to prove that the events at Sandy Hook didn't happen. And he was a totally credentialed, uh, totally respectable, mostly totally respectable philosophy professor who clearly has had you know, a, a mental event in his life. He's now 78, 79 years old uh, over the last decade or two. But it just shows what form of madness certitude is in a way. Um, anyway, it's a brilliantly drawn portrait of denialism in the extreme, and it's well worth uh, reading. It's a horrifying uh, piece of writing, brilliantly executed. And then very quickly, uh, any of you guys listen to Moses Sumney? I liked, uh, I have one album of his, the one with him like floating on the cover, which I like is a lot. That, is that a romanticism? Yes. Maybe? That is a great record. I only just discovered it. That is a brilliant, brilliant album. Um, Dan, how would you even describe what he's doing? I mean, it's like electronic ethereal, R&B, super ethereal, ethereal R&B that is a little bit from space, but also uh, is in bed. That's exactly very well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, anyway, check it out. Moses Sumney, and it's called A Romanticism, the word romanticism, but with the, the letter A in front of it. Like It's an album that the immoral. people of High Fidelity theoretically would love, but unfortunately in the exactly. alternate universe they live in, it has <laughs> never been released. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you, Dan. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. Please email us. We got some great ones this past week. Uh, please email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Sam Anderson and Dan Coyce, thanks so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Bye.